Yeah. Yeah, for sure. No, it was great. The title was fantastic just in itself. I thought so too. Okay. I mean, title is, um, you know, marketing is everything, right? And they say. With academic papers. I know. And that study's like, don't do funny things. People won't take you seriously. I wouldn't know anything about what electrocatalytic effects are in the first place. And now I do. I mean, come on. Your, your paper has to have at least one colon in the <laughs> title. <laughs> and with that, shall we uh, blow up some water? <laughs> yeah. All right. So here we go. of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information. But don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Well, I didn't blow away, if that's what you're asking, or get dented by any hail. (laughs) Yeah, Norman, that, that surrounding area, like 70 mile an hour straight lines and baseball hail. Yeah, you don't want baseball-sized hail coming at you 70 miles an hour. (laughs) I've seen pictures of brick that shattered on the side of people's house. It's incredible. It's nuts. It's really nuts. I will say, though, that there is a dead branch that's in the shape of an inverted V, right? And it's riding a... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the electric wire that goes from the pole to my house. And it's just set there and it rides the wire. If it's a north wind, it rides it further to the south <laughs> and vice versa. And that thing is still on there. <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was it was impressive. Um, that storm this week made national news. So I've gotten all kinds of texts, you know, and we didn't, we were just north of it, literally a mile north of baseball size hail and 60 mile per hour winds. So, um, yeah, I'm afraid my insurance is going to go up again. <laughs> For sure. Uh, One of the craziest things I saw was a video of the hail coming. Cause it, it was a very sharp, well-defined boundary. Oh yeah. And it just, it sounds like a prolonged semi-accident <laughs> just coming across this field <laughs> And uh, they're sitting in their truck, and then it just sounds like a gang of angry Hells Angels <laughs> starts beating on this truck with baseball bats. Uh, so that was funny because that's that was like the first thing that everyone commented on was how loud the storm was. And then our good friend um, Gary McManus, our state climatologist in the Mesonet ticker today, said the same thing. He said, I haven't heard a storm that loud since the 2013 tornado that almost hit his house. And so, yeah. Yeah, we got to experience that even though our our hail was only dime-sized. I maybe saw a couple of quarters out there. Um, but, yeah, it was super loud. So, um, it's very We exciting. had a small surge in hail ruler sales last night, too, which I thought was pretty great. <laughs> Uh, it was lightning way too much for me to get any of that hail in the hail rulers. <laughs> um, one of my friends had a very interesting observation um, backed up by by her phone data that it was weird. In their front yard, she had the gnarly hail with all the spikes on it. And in the back, they were all smooth. 
Ooh. Mm-hmm. That's some interesting boundary. Yes, I know. There. I was like, I don't even understand what kind of sampling bias could get you that. So what happened on top of your house? <laughs> okay. Uh-huh. Yep. Yep. Lots of friends got windows smashed out in their house and... There was a lot of plywood on the way into work this morning, which, you know, it's more expensive than just replacing the house now. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, we had some wild weather over here, too. We had massive flash flooding uh, Mm -hmm. about two blocks from our office. There were a couple of cars floating (laughs) in uh, what was a Reverend underpass that people drove Uh. under, even though there was... 10 feet of water. You know, a week ago, they were talking about the crazy QPF values in this storm. Yeah. And so that was not a surprise. No one should have been driving in that. (laughs) Yes. And so that's quantitative precipitation forecast. And it was insane. It verified. Yeah. Yeah, it did. Uh, (laughs) Usually it's like, no, that won't be true. No, it was true. Yeah, we had some of the creeks around here go up like five feet in a matter of six hours. Unreal. Uh, over seven inches an hour peak rain rate at our shop. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. It was crazy. Uh, and we had, of course, that did all kinds of things. The power infrastructure uh, in our area, which is fantastic when you're, you know, cutting and welding metal. Uh, it was a wild day. Yeah, it really was. I know, like, you know, you sound like, I don't know, two old geezers talking about the weather, but this was very exciting. <laughs> yes, it, definitely go look at some of the videos of the central Oklahoma hailstorm. Oh, yeah, yeah, it'll be well worth your 20 minutes, which was way longer. There's probably, you know, there's way more video out there than the actual event lasted. It seemed like it ran through here, screamed through here pretty fast, but... um. Yeah. And if, if you're listening to this way in the future, that would be April 28th, 2021. Yes. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's that's uh, how we've been. <laughs> yeah. So you decided to talk about something else exciting, but with a I mean, geologic twist. Right. So instead of frozen water, I thought we'd talk about boiling water. <laughs> <laughs> because that's what comes next in Oklahoma. We're almost to boiling water month. That's right. <laughs> you know, I'm really shocked that we haven't talked about geysers at all on this podcast. I know you would think they were a topic that would just pop up. Oh, goodness. I'm, I got to go to bed. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I mean, I know that you're not awash in all of this um, geyser talk, but we'll. It's true. (laughs) Um, Okay. (laughs) So what's a geyser? Well, other than everybody knows things like Old Faithful that shoots steaming water out of the ground at a regular interval or, well, used to be regular interval. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get to that. (laughs) Yeah. So (laughs) what scientifically makes something a geyser? Yeah. So it's, boiling water underground that gets shot up through a hole, essentially. It's a very violent hot spring. Um, I think, well, I don't really know. I feel like we take geysers for granted because 
we have so many here in and around Yellowstone. By here, I mean the United States. But they're actually pretty uncommon in a lot of the world. So the most common places you'd find them are actually Yellowstone or in Iceland. So if you've ever been there, they're happening all over there. And New Zealand. And the reason is that plate tectonics <laughs> is similar in all these areas. We have hot springs all over the place, but geysers are hotter than hot springs. <laughs> and that's the main difference. Right. So we're looking at volcanic or tectonically active regions. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Because, okay. So we've talked about aquifers on here right now and, or we've talked about aquifers before on this show. And so right now we have to go back to some aquifer stuff because geysers are born from areas that have unique groundwater situations happening. Right. So a hot spring can be found in lots of different places, especially if you're from Arkansas, right? You can go to hot springs, Arkansas (laughs) and the, the water in hot springs is hot, (laughs) but it's hot because you have an enhanced geothermal gradient for one reason or another. You can probably talk more about why you'd get enhanced geothermal gradients. Uh, Potentially, but (laughs) (laughs) that's probably also a little deeper than we want to go. But yeah, so you're looking at, again, like I said, either you're at some tectonically interesting place, Mm -hmm. you've got uh, a magma upwelling, you've got... I guess in an extreme case, you could have radiological events. Right, yeah. See, we've talked about that on here too. So you can get hot springs from that. And the water's really hot. It can be really, really hot, scalding hot. But the difference with geysers is that you take that groundwater that would normally just come up as a hot spring, which there are plenty of hot springs in Yellowstone too. And you get it a little closer to your source of heat. And in the case of all the geysers, the source of heat is a magma body. And now instead of just heating the water, you start boiling the water. And then you get a phase change. And this is where it gets difficult because there's not a lot of room (laughs) underground, right, to change from liquid to vapor form of water. And so it's got to come out and it comes out pressurized and crazy in some cases. (laughs) And that's, that's what this geyser is. It's the release of this pressure. Once you've actually boiled your groundwater. It's basically a soil teapot Mm -hmm. because (laughs) you've got this big reservoir water. It gets heated by, you know, the propane or electric flame on your stove, but there's Mm -hmm. this itty bitty hole. Yeah. That's all it's got to escape because there's not, much like you said, there's not much space there's not a lot for it to go we've talked about porosity before 30 percent's a big number mm-hmm. yes huge number. and that's not much and your tea kettle is you know mostly 98 yeah. <laughs> percent um so yeah you get this pretty dramatic explosion and steam explosions are a real thing in industry too mm-hmm. i mean like mm-hmm. go go look up steam is powerful there's a reason that it Powered the industrial revolution. Yeah, there is yeah. so much energy stored in steam. I mean, steam locomotives, right? If you've ever yeah. been on been on one of those, you should 
be able to recall that feeling. And that's all powered by steam too. Um, The thing that I think about when I'm thinking about groundwater, because this is always sort of a tricky thing. We talked about this in aquifers because we're like, there aren't rivers of underground water. But (laughs) (laughs) except when there are, except when there are, (laughs) Uh, correct. (laughs) And so if you've been to Yellowstone or even if you haven't and you can just like recollect a picture in your mind of Yellowstone, that's a lot of water. (laughs) right? And so these groundwater systems, I mean, sometimes you can get like pools of water underneath the ground, especially in something like. Like Yellowstone. Um, and so maybe now we should talk about Yellowstone in general, because those are the only geysers I've been to. I haven't been to Iceland or New Zealand, unfortunately. But I can talk about Yellowstone, because I've been there several times. And we get to use my favorite geologic couplet of words. Oh, no. <laughs> Horst and mm-hmm. Graben. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> So if you're a volcanologist, you're not going to want to hear us say those words, but because we're more on the structural side of geology, that's what we're going to describe Yellowstone as. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, okay. Caldera. Mm-hmm. Yay. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, what, what's, what's a horse and graben? Well, a horse and graben are, you have something, let's say an extensional event and the rock breaks generally at these kind of characteristic 30 ish to 60 ish degree angles, depending on where you're looking at stress at. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one piece goes down and the other pieces go up. The pieces that go up are the, the horses. They're, they're horses. They ride up. And the piece that falls down is the Graben. Uh, <laughs> I've never thought about horse, horses rising up. Yeah, but there yeah. you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so in this case, it's not necessarily like nice, fun plate tectonics extension. The extension happened when a massive hot spot blew apart an entire landscape. <laughs> and now you've got this big caldera of which the center is basically this big graben. Right. So this big sunken down piece of stuff with faults all around the edge and all through it. And we know that faults are really good at what? Yeah, blocking or providing conduits for water. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Depending on which story you want to tell, they either stop water from flowing or they only let water flow. It's so true. (laughs) And in this case, it also does both of those things. (laughs) Right. Uh, There's also some interesting, you know, it can only let water flow one way, but... That's another topic for another show. Yeah, we're not going to talk about that right now. (laughs) Yeah, so this groundwater system inside the big Yellowstone caldera, nobody calls it the Yellowstone Graben, but that's what it is, um, is, it's fueled by, I mean, it's affected by the magma body that's still underneath Yellowstone. And there's a lot of debate, which I think we're finally getting a little bit better idea about how deep that magma body is. And it's been sort of unknown because it's just, it's hard to tell. It's hard to tell where it is. It's probably fairly close to the surface. And so, yeah, magma, it's going to really heat up (laughs) that groundwater there. And those faults that happen even within the graben 
that hotspot that we've got and that magma and the associated faults run this crazy plumbing system that it that is hotspots and geysers within the Yellowstone caldera. Right. So we've got crazy plumbing of magma. We've got crazy plumbing of water. <laughs> yeah. We have a heavily faulted and active mm-hmm. area. You know, we got lots of seismic activity there. So this plumbing system's always getting changed around a little bit too. Mm-hmm. And you get this water boiling, pressurized, and then eventually it breaks out. And depending on, especially depending on how the water comes into that area, uh, right. you can get some pretty large pressures that it has to overcome before it shoots out. So you get pretty dramatic explosions. Right. And so if you've spent any time there, you know, like there's big places um, like Mammoth Hot Springs. And that's just a hot springs. I mean, I say just a hot springs. That water is still ridiculously hot. It's much hotter than anything, say, in hot springs, Arkansas. Um, And lots of people die. I mean, lots of people, tens of people, probably in the past decade or something, have died from falling into these. So it's not a joke. They're they're super hot um, amounts of, or super hot water just in the hot springs there. And then you've got these geysers. So there are tiny geysers at Yellowstone. There are little geysers that you walk up on and you see them erupting basically almost the whole time. And this was mind blowing to me the first time I went. We go on this walk and they have these raised boardwalks everywhere because they don't want you falling through a crust into, you know, (laughs) one of these underground pools of almost boiling water. And so you're walking along and there's this hole that looks like a geyser should be there. And there's this sign, and this is the first time I went, and I'm sitting there reading it, and it was like, what? This used to be a geyser, but five years ago, there was a big earthquake, and now it just doesn't erupt anymore. What? <laughs> the plumbing changed. I, it's so, I think we get real caught up on geologic processes and time being so large scale and so long that you forget that no, like they can, they can also happen instantaneously. (laughs) And I just, I was like, it was mind blown that five years ago, this plumbing changed and then a geyser probably spouted up somewhere else where it hadn't been going before. And it said that preceding that, all these geyser pools at a certain level drained. So like whatever the earthquake did, it opened up a conduit and all of those geyser pools drained. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Earthquakes do a lot of, and even teleseisms from way far away do a lot of really interesting things to, yeah, to hydrology. I mean, that's yes. Like that's, that's really cool. I we have that in Southern Oklahoma. We've talked a little bit about like the Vendome well and stuff, and we should talk some more about that plumbing in our aquifers down here because that's a really active tectonic system too. But so obviously there's lots of earthquakes here, just like John said. And I mean those earthquakes come from movements within the magma chamber, which is terrifying. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, so it's scary. a system that is you know it's creating the earthquakes that are changing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which probably yeah. have feedbacks onto 
where yes. things move, which, yeah. So it's a very highly coupled dynamic system. Mm-hmm. And if you want to try to take that and just treat it by itself, you can't because it's actually affected by other spheres of Earth, meaning the atmosphere and our orbital position, because some of the geysers are seasonal, which I hadn't thought of one bit. <laughs> and some of it, then, we get to talk about mineralogy, because things like uh, mineral formation in the off-season for that geyser can clog up passageways, and you have to blow that out or find a yeah. new passageway. So deposition right. happens on a seasonal timescale, not yearly, not hundreds of millions of years. Seasonal. Seasonally. That's awesome. Um, so one of the bigger geyser basins, so one of the slow, low parts in this graben, is the Norris Geyser Basin. And that's the part where you can walk around for a really long time through all these boardwalks. And in the winter in Wyoming, and part of it's in Montana, you get a lot of snow, so you've got lots of snowfall, and you have a really high water table. And that basically acts like the lid on the teapot that John was talking about earlier. And it keeps the pressure under control because the water table is so high. So you can only, you know, you need some room for things to, once you start boiling water, right? If you don't have any air or anything in the system... You can really heat that water up a lot before it's going to explode. And so keeps the pressure under control. But also, if you get all that hot water sitting there, you start to deposit minerals. And so this is all over Yellowstone. They're all over really cool colors in this stuff that's coming out from under the ground. <laughs> you know, and a lot of the geysers have sort of little, they look like little volcanoes at the surface because of all the minerals that are held in that water at that really high temperature. And as that really hot water makes it to the surface, it changes its pressure and temperature conditions, right? It's no longer pressurized. It's actually cooling way down. And it says, ooh, I can't carry any of these cool ions anymore. I'm going to drop them off and deposit them as all kinds of really neat carbonates everywhere. And as it does that, that's what these mounds of different colors are that you see everywhere, but that's also happening under the ground too. So you've got high water table, everything's kosher underneath there, no chaotic explosions. You get mineralization happening. Now you get summer <laughs> and bad stuff. <laughs> yeah. So the water table changes, you've got less pressure. Now you can go to steam at a, a lower pressure point. Because you got to remember that's happening in this whole process too, is as you go from a highly pressurized environment to atmosphere, mm -hmm. uh, you can go to steam more easily. So that's where you can get things like steam explosions. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Then we start erupting again because now we don't have all that hydraulic head turning our boiler into a pressurized water boiler. Yeah. And that's where if you've got, enough mineralization in some spots, you will have blocked off geysers, you will open up new geysers because of that change in pressure, or you blow out chunks of minerals too when you do it. Um, and that seasonality, if it's an extremely wet summer, you keep that high water table and then all of this changeover will happen in the fall, which is and not something I thought about. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, as as the philosopher Goldblum once said, uh, you know, pressure finds a way, <laughs> and it is going <sighs> to get out somewhere. <laughs> oh man! Um, <laughs> so moving on. <laughs> I just didn't realize, just like the, I didn't go to Yellowstone until I was an adult, and I just didn't realize the transient nature of a bunch of the of of the hydrology there um but old faithful is probably the most famous geyser in the world and it isn't exactly transient and so it's interesting to think about what makes old faithful so predictable if these are all the conditions that geysers you know depend on right and one thing i would think of is scale right? Mm-hmm. You've got big pipes, things like mineralization affect them less. Right. Right. That's what I would, yeah. And so you've got, it's got to be a little bit more stable maybe where that is. That's just me talking. I don't know if that's actually true, but yeah, you know, a, a more hydraulically neutral environment. Mm-hmm. Right. And the way that water moves gets stored and heated up is fairly predictable. So it's probably, you know, a a little bit of a closed area, a closed hydraulic area right there. And it heats up, spews out at, you know, however many feet it goes up in the air, 300 feet or whatever it used to be. Um, Then once it's done, it's got to fill up again and it starts all over. And so that, regular interval of that made it a really big attraction but mm, old faithful is much less faithful now right right. Mm -hmm. so it had been well 60 minutes ish 74 minutes is the current average Mm -hmm. uh, to get that nice repeating you know this is engineering. And honestly, in a geologic system, 74 minutes, you're probably, I mean, you can probably treat this as an adiabatic process almost. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now we're seeing things ranging from, you know, 60 to 120 minutes. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, it, when, the last time I was there, it sort of had this two-stage thing. So if it would go off within 60 minutes, then it would take 90 minutes for the next one. But sometimes it would be 90 minutes and then you do the next one with 60 minutes. So it was it was super um it's super interesting how it's changed over time. And obviously they have a lot of data on that since it's one of the biggest attractions of the park. So right. Yeah. And this this seems like something that somebody's going to machine learn on or <laughs> I would think so. Yeah. yeah. It seems like a really cool data set to probably look at too. I just love it when people are there and you can just walk around and hear this and they're complaining when it doesn't go off, you know, at the 60 minute mark it was predicted to and I want to be like, do you people know what's happening here? <laughs> this is amazing <laughs> that this happens at all. <laughs> Yes, they want to speak to management about why it's late. <sighs> yes, exactly. But now they can just listen to this podcast and understand how geysers work. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, I mean, that's really, you know, the the actual mechanics of geysers aren't really that complicated. But in reality, you know. But they are you know, very cool. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So, like, the geologic setting of them can be very complicated. But it's really just, you get magma near the surface and you boil your groundwater. Comes out a tiny hole, it's going to shoot up in the air. There you go. <laughs> Yep, and you know we can. Uh, there are lots of folks that are working on all kinds of the the modeling and everything on this that I'm sure would be pretty interesting to talk to. Maybe we can even dig up some fun papers on it. Oh yeah, absolutely. Because obviously this is not in either of our wheelhouses, <laughs> right? <laughs> but after um, almost seven years, it's getting slim pickings on <laughs> what we can talk about. <laughs> Now there's always something every week. Oh, we, we have yet to uh to struggle for a topic. Yeah, that is that is absolutely true. And I'm I am super shocked we haven't talked about these before. But mm-hmm. we'll get someone who really knows what they're talking about to come tell us about the geysers. <laughs> well, now let's go on and talk about something else we don't know anything about. <laughs> which means it's time for Fun Paper Friday. Yay! Now, this is all about poop, and we definitely know about that. <laughs> we do know about poop, but the rest of it, not so much. Uh-huh. Um, so this comes from our friend Matt Hamilton, who said, this seems right up your alley, and it is. Will any crap we put into graphene increase its electrocatalytic, ca- electrocatalytic effect by Wang et al.? Which, when I first saw the title, I was like, okay, they're going to just try putting random stuff in. Nope, they try guano. (laughs) But as a tongue-in-cheek way to say, look, everybody's trying to to increase this electrocatalytic effect in graphene because it's important for fuel cells and all these energy things that are becoming very, very important now. Uh and they're trying doping all of these different elements into it. And everybody's, oh, look, this this works great at increasing the electrocatalytic effect. And they said, well, mm-hmm. from what we can tell, everything increases the electrocatalytic <laughs> effect. It doesn't really matter what you put in it. So they tried poop. And guess what? Oh, it increased it was the electrocatalytic effect. <laughs> very effectively. I love the satirical and also scientific nature of this article. Like, I'm going to say that it is so well written. <laughs> it's one of the best ones. And this is this is an American Chemical Society. It's in Nano. Like, this is a, a real publication. But I love it that they say, look, there's 84 reasonably stable elements. That's 84 articles that we can talk about this. <laughs> And then if we put two dopants in, that's, you know, three thirty five hundred possible combinations. <laughs> I just love that. It's like we can increase our H index all day by writing articles about this. Well, and some somewhere there's an army of grad students doing exactly that. That is exactly right. <laughs> um, so I, I guess that, you know, there's a guano war, right? Like... This was a thing. Did you know about this? No. Okay. <laughs> so they reference it in this article, right? Like stuff about how guano could again become a a very, I mean, it's obviously a cheap thing because it's just poop. 
Um, but it was once fought over. And so our friend Matt was telling me about this. Yes. So I guess Spain and Peru fought the Guano War in 1864. <laughs> I have so many comments that I can't make <laughs> on the air about this. I know. And in 1879 between Bolivia, Chile, and Peru about like they used guano and they kept taking over these like guano rich islands and fighting over. Yeah. Who controlled guano Navy sailed to faraway places and wars were once fought over guano. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> it is. And you know, I mean, they, they did say, well, look, this is something that right now nobody wants. So it's very economically feasible to do this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, if if we all started using it, they might have to put a uh, carbon crap on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, which is what these, <laughs> the guano tax is what these wars broke out about in the 19th yep. century. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. These are some really good SEM images of guano poop, too. <laughs> Yeah, so they did SEM, uh, then they did Raman to look at what their their defect density was once they put this dopant onto the graphene. Uh, X-ray photoelectron spectroscopy, which is XPS, uh, for looking at the different elements and how they're actually bonded or didn't bond. Uh, did Can you all do XPS? I don't know if we can or not. Um I'm not sure. It's pretty cool data, but I don't see it a lot, especially in, well, I say especially in geology, well, but this is yeah. in geology. This is more <laughs> material science. Exactly. I don't know. I don't know, John. These these spectra look pretty crappy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Couldn't let you have all of them. <laughs> all right. <laughs> um, I do like uh, linear sweep voltimograms. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's one I hadn't seen before. (laughs) Let's see. Yeah. So, and really the figures in here are pretty decent. Uh, One thing, if you're not used to looking at uh, spectra and for material science, you're going to say, Hey, they left all the numbers off the Y axis. (laughs) They didn't. Uh, The numbers don't matter. (laughs) (laughs) It's the ratios of the numbers. Just like uh, the points what's that game? <laughs> Whose line is I was going to make yeah, that reference and didn't think anybody would get it. Yep. <laughs> oh, that's why we do this podcast together. <laughs> exactly. So you, a lot of times you're even looking at like, you know, raw bits from an analog to digital converter. Like it doesn't even, the manufacturer doesn't bother to put it in anything else because it that's doesn't matter. If you need something that's absolute numbers, you're going to have to run standards anyway. Hmm. To convert them. So in most of these plots, you're just looking at uh, intensity units. That's great. Yep. (laughs) Intensity units. I did notice that and didn't know why. Mm. Yep. So if you want to actually know how much of something there is and you got to go do, you know, multiple standards and it can get quite painful. Yeah. Understandable. Or if you're, if you're doing, you know, think about a, um, an X-ray spectra when you're doing crystallographic work. You don't actually care 
how much energy you got, how many, yeah. you know, like it's, it's what it's is weird. that relationship to the peaks around it? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Exactly right. Because w- when you fit Spectre, you fit the shape, which let me tell you, if there's ever something that's been more of an art <laughs> and real close <laughs> to statistics about letting you lie with it, it's fitting Spectra. Oh boy. That's for sure. I love being on those theses. It's like, oh, you could literally say whatever you want. This is great. <laughs> You're like, that little peak was, you know, the fluorescent lights. And this peak was something else that was going on in the room. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, yeah. Uh, I thought they, this they was do, very... Uh, oh, go ahead. Well, they do, they do say that they, uh, they hope with the dramatic advantages that they found that no wars <laughs> or even trade wars will be started over bird droppings. This is unreal to me. The guano wars. Mm-hmm beautiful just beautiful i do like that they also said that if you're actually going to use this then maybe you can start uh tailoring the food that you give to certain birds to dope the catalyst in a very specific way (laughs) yeah well they they list off a lot of the elements that are in guano it's a lot of things that people are already trying anyway right Mm -hmm. yeah and this was much cheaper yeah, you have natural reactors flying around. Who knew? These guys wang it all new. <laughs> they did. <laughs> what a cheap, cheap thing to do, too, right? <laughs> right. I love it. So, yeah, if uh, you have tried increasing the electrocatalytic effect in your graphene samples or enhancing your fuel cell efficiency, we would love to know what crap you put in your graphene and how it worked. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Send us your crap. Show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. We're on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I am at Shannon Doolin. You can come hang out in the Slack chat room, the Don't Panic channel on the Software Underground. And as always, thank you for supporting us on Patreon. If you would like to do so, you can find us, patreon.com slash don'tpanicgeo. And even though the birds overfly your neighbor's freshly washed red Corvette and head straight for you whenever they hear us say it, (laughs) until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies. 